Let's open our Bibles today, please, to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12. We'd like to uh, take one more, one more stab at uh, good old Abraham, Father Abraham. When our service is over this morning, um, I'd like to have our ushers, a couple of ushers, stand at the back door there with some plates. Uh, we got word yesterday that a church up here in Grindstone, how many people know where that is, Grindstone, uh, burned down uh, one of our Baptist churches, and so we'd just like to show them a little love and care for them uh, after the service, okay? Genesis chapter 12. Uh, I'd like to talk to you this morning about Abraham's walk of faith. Abraham, as you know, um, left the Ur of the Chaldeans. Um, we showed you that. Do we have that? Uh, there it is. Over on the right side, that's some modern-day Iraq down there. Uh, those two rivers going up there are the Tigris and Euphrates River. And uh, this was the journey that uh, Abraham, the father of the faithful, took. Uh, he got up to Haran, and he stopped there for a while. And uh, then he eventually got down into what we call the Canaan land. This is the, the promised land, the land that flows with milk and honey, the destination. God called him to go and, and, um, and to establish what we know today as the nation of Israel. That's their homeland uh, today. But in route, uh, I want to draw your attention to verse number 6 of um, Genesis 12. Abram passed through the land of the place of Shechem as far as the tabernacle tree of Morah, and the Canaanites were in the land. These were the people that God was uh, removing from that land because they were so wicked. That's what God does. Uh, whenever a culture becomes so wicked, God judges them. And he was in the course of judging the Canaanites here, and uh, they were in the course of losing the land that they had inhabited, and God was giving it to the nation of Israel. Uh, he came to the land, and he was confronted by the Canaanites. They were going to be his opponents. Whenever you walk by faith, there are always plenty of opponents. Amen? Amen. I mean, uh, as soon as you start out and try to obey the Lord, it's like, whoa. This is a whole lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Uh, there are opponents all over the place. He ran into them right away. Verse number 7 says, Then the Lord appeared to Abraham. And this was God's way of saying, Hey, Abraham, look at me. Don't look at them. Keep your eyes on me. God's always trying to get us to do that, isn't he? You know, uh, we're all, uh, we all look at the situations around us and we become overwhelmed with them. And God says, that, Now listen, just, just please, please look at me. And so he appeared to Abraham and said to your descendants, I will give this land. And I'm sure that was quite an overwhelming thought to Abraham because, uh, because he didn't own any of it. He, he was a pilgrim. He lived in his tent. And God says, this land is going to be given to you. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And if you were here for the last few weeks, I've told you that the word Bethel means house of God and the word Ai means heap of ruins. And so he pitched his tent between those two and that's where he decided to live. 
And whenever he, he planted his roots, uh, the scripture says he built another altar. He got in the habit of having an altar. And I guess one of the best definitions I've ever heard of an altar is the place where man meets God and God meets man. That's your altar. It doesn't have to be something formal. It doesn't have to be uh, the steps at the front of the church. Just the place where you get together with God. That's your altar. The place that you offer your sacrifices to God, the place where you offer your worship to God, the, the place where God gets your attention. That's your altar. And, um, and so he was journeying and he was, uh, he was doing what God called him to do. He finally made it over here to what we call the Holy Land. Beersheba, Megiddo, Shechem. Uh, that was his land. And so he was doing his thing. And in verse number 10, the scripture says, Now there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And I've written in my Bible, obstacles. First of all, the Canaanites were his opponents. A famine was his obstacle. How do you get over that? That's hard. Well, Abraham, right at this point in his journey of faith, backslid. Uh, you never hear that word too much anymore, but I guess it's a good word because... Because every person who ever signs up with the Lord in some way backslides. Um, sometimes it's big time backsliding. Other times it's just slipping back a little bit. You know, there are all sorts of variations to this thing. When you're not, you've heard this many times, when you're not moving forward, where are you going? You're going backwards, right? There's no like static situation. I think I'll just put my Christian life on hold and I'll, I'll stay right here. Well, you know, we're climbing a mountain, and, you, and if you stop moving forward, you start rolling backwards. And that's what happened to Abraham here. Uh, he packed up his family, and he went to Egypt. Now, that wasn't where God called him to go. God called him to go to the Holy Land, to the Canaan Land. Uh, he was more occupied with circumstances than God at this time. He stepped out of the will of God. Have you ever done that? Well, that's a, a rhetorical question, isn't it? We all know the answer to that, right? We've all stepped out of the will of God, and we do it plenty of times, don't we? God, we know what God's will is, and we kind of like go our own direction. Uh, the thing that I think is, uh, is, is stunning to me here is the fact that there was no altar at this point. You know, as he was walking in faith, he was building an altar, and all of a sudden he hit hard times. And what he did is he did what... You and I do oftentimes. He rolled up his sleeves and said, listen, I'll handle this thing. I'll work it out my way. I'll go down to, I'll go down to Egypt. Uh, and he didn't confer with the Lord. I love uh, John 5.30. Uh, when I discovered this, I, Jim Watts uh, sent me this scripture one time. In the New Living Translation, let's read it together, okay? But I do nothing without consulting the Father. I judge as I am told, and my judgment is absolutely just, because it is according to the will of God who sent me. It is not merely my own. These are the words of our Lord, and he says, I do nothing without consulting the Father. Wow. Boy, when I first saw that verse in that particular translation, I was taken back because I do so many things in my life without consulting the father you know I kind of like respond and react and and uh, just do my own thing 
And, uh, but here Jesus said, listen, when I was on earth, I, I subordinated myself to my heavenly Father. God the Son subordinated himself to God the Father. And he put himself in a, uh, in a, a subordinated uh, position. And uh, he was always in touch with his Father, getting direction, confirmation, things of that nature. And so this is what Abraham didn't do when he made this mistake. He wasn't saying, Lord, do you think you and I could like work it out here and think I could live in, uh, uh, in the place of promise even though the famine's here? Do you, could you feed me here? He didn't do that. He uh, just made his own decision. And so Abraham, though, went down into Egypt. He came back with more than he bargained for. Uh, I've, I have a number of things, and if, you're, if you like to write notes, here they are. Uh, what did Abraham come back from Egypt with? Or what did he lose while he was down there? He lost time. Any time you step out of the will of God, you lose time. You don't gain time, you lose time. Uh, I mentioned last week, somebody gave me this little thing, I have it on my desk, and uh, I look at it as often as I I can. It says, make sure you do today what's important because you're exchanging one day of your life for it. And so when Abraham went down to Egypt, I'll tell you what, that wasn't important because that wasn't where God called him. That's where he wanted to go. He stepped out of the will of God and he lost time. You know, that's something you can never regain again. It's always gone, isn't it? It never comes back. And uh, there, are no res- there are no rewards when you go to Egypt. Egypt in the Bible is a type of the world. And when you head off over into the world, it's like uh, your reward system is done because the Bible says God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Abraham wasn't seeking God. He was seeking relief from his circumstances. And so no rewards were being added up for him when he went down to Egypt. Uh, he lost precious time. He lost his testimony. You know, it, it takes a long time to build a testimony. You know that? When a person comes to Christ, they go to work and, and they make this big pronouncement, hey, look at me, I got right with God. And you know what the people at work say? Oh, yeah, right. We know that'll last like a week. You're not a, one of those religionist, religionist conversionists. And uh, you just made that, you won't last very long. And so as you last and as you last and as you last, what happens? You build a testimony, right? And people say, well, you know, if there's ever the genuine article, it's that person right there. Uh, It's kind of dangerous to say that, though, isn't it? Uh, It takes a long time to build a good testimony. And boy, you can just wreck it just like that. It's like, whoa, crash. And, you know, that's what happened to Abraham. Abraham was doing, going the right direction. He was building altars. He was serving God. And now his little spiritual world came crumbling down. He headed down into Egypt. Uh, he lost his testimony because you, were, you know the story. He came back out of Egypt. He was so humiliated that he had messed up so tremendously. Uh, another thing that he gained down there in Egypt is he gained more wealth. Uh, If you'll notice over there with me to uh, chapter 13, verse 2, the Bible says Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and gold. That was his portfolio right there. That's the way they they managed their wealth back in those days. How many herds did you have? What silver and gold do you have? 
and uh, the first verse says that he came back from Egypt with all that he had. He came back wealthier than when he went down, and that proved to be a problem. It really did, because here in just a little while, he was, he's, going to have a, he's going to have a struggle. His, his herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen, they're going to fight over the territory, and uh, I think it has financial connotations. 1 Peter 6.10 is an interesting verse. Let's read it together. For the love of money is at the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Boy, I'll tell you, you look at all the corruption in our government. Uh, you look at all the corruption in our world. Where's the, where's the root of it? It's right here, right? Somebody's getting some money. Money's at the bottom of it. And, uh, and so many times what happens is the more people get that last word comes to play, the more sorrowful it becomes for them. And so here Abraham, he's, a, he's accumulating wealth. He's got herds. He's got silver. He's got gold. Uh, but it's not going to serve him very well. Now, listen, please don't misunderstand me. Money is not a bad thing. It's supposed to be a neutral thing. Uh, it's not supposed to be our master. It's supposed to be our servant. Money's a good thing, and I know most of you wish you could, you could enjoy a little bit more of it, right? Uh, you could uh, get a little bit more so that you could uh, live a, a little bit easier and you could uh, share it with some other people who are in need. That's, uh, that, that's making money your servant. But I don't think that happened in the life of Abraham. When he came back from Egypt, he listened to this, he lost a nephew to the world. Remember, Abraham was the protector and guardian of uh, Lot, his nephew. And, uh, and so can, I just want you to give you this picture. Here's Abraham, this big spiritual giant, and he really was. He was a spiritual giant. He was in touch with God. And here's little Lot, his nephew. And you know, his nephew's looking up to Abraham, and Abraham's leading him. Come on, we're going into the Holy Land. We're going to trust God. And all of a sudden, Abraham's testimony begins to dissipate in the eyes of Lot. Uh, you know what happens? Lot last, lost his faith. His faith faltered. And how many times has that happened in our country? Remember a number of years ago when all the televangelist people were crashing, and so many people went down with them. You know that? They said, listen, we, we, we had confidence in these people. We thought these people were going in the right direction. And now they were fraudulent. You know, they, were, they, weren't, they, didn't, they weren't really real. And so therefore, I'm going to give up on the whole situation. Well, that's what happened. Lot's heart was hardened. He was lost to the world. But this is the neatest thing right here. Abraham's heart was melted by his backsliding. And that's the way backsliding is supposed to affect you and me. Backsliding is not the end of your Christian journey. It's just part of it. It's just part of it. And so you're going along real strong. And, and you know, you just got through summer. And summer was hard, wasn't it? Man, and summer, you know, you're running, strong, you're running 110 miles an hour. And, and where's God in the whole picture? So you're running real strong. And all of a sudden, you're doing all these things you want to do in the summertime, but you're not doing the things you know you need to do. And you start to backslide away from the Lord. And then you come to your senses like, uh, okay, now I have to get my act together again. <laughs> how, many times have we how many times have we done that? 
We have to get our act together again. Uh, and, and we're melted. We feel bad because we've wasted our time and we've wasted God's time and we've stepped out of his will and, and we're convicted and we're humbled and that's what backsliding is supposed to do for us. It's supposed to melt our heart. We're supposed to come back to God and say, God, forgive me. I'm sorry. This was stupid of me. I got caught up in the world and I lost my attention. I lost my focus. That's what happened to Abraham. But God restored him. You know that? God's restoration is really wonderful. His forgiveness is really great. Uh, don't, beat, don't beat yourself up because uh, you went sideways or backways during the summertime. Come back to God. Come back to God and he will restore you. Uh, remember in the Bible, when the prodigal son uh, came back after a long time of backsliding, he sat down right with the father. And man, the father op opened his arms and received him completely. He didn't say, hey, listen, uh, live out there in the chicken coop for a while until you prove your worthiness to come back into the family. He said, come on back in, sit down. That's what the Lord does for us. When we come back and we say, Lord, I really blew it, I really backslid, I, I, I lost my testimony, you know, I, and et cetera, et cetera. Remember Peter. Peter denied the Lord how many times? I'll give you a clue. <laughs> Peter denied the Lord how many times? Do you think he felt bad? He was horrified. He thought he could never do that because he was the one saying, hey, look at me. I'll be the last one to let you down. He was horrified, but God restored him completely. And listen to this. When he was preaching, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, I want you to, I'm going to give this to you. He said this, you denied the Holy One and the Just One. He was talking to Israel, and that's the very thing, same thing he did. He denied the Holy One. But God so cleansed his soul that he was able to get up and preach once more with a clean heart. That's what God does for us. Now, Abraham walked by faith from that point in time on and Lot walked by sight. Uh, they, uh, they had this problem. Their herdsmen, we're, we're, we're in chapter 13 of Genesis 9, there was strife in verse 7. They had this problem. So Abraham steps up and, he, and Abraham starts to seek peace. Abraham is a peacemaker. And that's what every believer should be, a peacemaker. Uh, he had all this confusion going on. And look at verse number 8. Abraham said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me. Listen, let's have peace. Uh, Romans twelve eighteen says this. Let's look at it. Let's read it. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. It's nice to be at peace, isn't it? Whew. Man, strife is hard. It, where it just the thought, just the word of it, and all almost knocks you down. Uh, and so Abraham here is trying to live at peace, and he's tired of this contention that he's having with his nephew Lot, and all this is going on. He says, "Listen, let's be peaceful." And then the next thing he does is he surrenders his rights, and he says, "Listen, I have an idea. Let's you and I separate. Well, this is not working out the way I thought it was going to. Let's separate. You take the land that you want. Look at verse number nine. Is not the whole land before you? Now, this was big because, remember, God essentially gave the land to Abraham, and he says, now, Lot, you choose what you want. Now, that's a magnanimous personality there. Uh, he surrendered his rights. He said, listen, you just choose wherever you want to go. And Lot lifted up his eyes, 
And when Abraham was seeking peace, look at this, Lot was seeking property. Because he came out of Egypt, but Egypt never came out of him. He was walking by sight, and Abraham was walking by faith. And so, uh, so Lot put his eyes on the property. Look at verse 10. He lifted up his eyes and he saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered. Now, water is uh, very precious over there in the Holy Land. Uh, you know, that's a dry, arid desert place over there. But not the Jordan Valley. The Jordan Valley is gorgeous, man. It has water and it's beautiful. And so he lifted up his eyes and he said, listen, this is the property I want. And, and look what it says. It's well watered uh, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah like the garden of the Lord. Actually, the plain of Jordan was like the garden of Eden, like the land of Egypt. He says, this reminds me of Egypt. And so that's what I want. Abraham was trying to work a peace deal. Lot says, listen, I want property. Uh, the eye gate Always gets us in trouble, doesn't it? I listed a number of scriptures. You might want to write them down. 1 John 2, 15 and 17 talks about the lust of the eyes. We have to guard what we look at. You know that? You know, you're, you're out working during the day and you're, you're looking over there and it's all of a sudden it's like, oh, I can't look at that. That's a good thing. Don't look at that. Uh, you say, man, I'm, I'm on a computer and, and uh, I can't look at that. Holy that wrecked my life. So we, the eye gate is dangerous. We have to guard what we look at. Remember, that's what got us in trouble in the beginning. In Genesis 3, 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for fruit. She kind of, and pleasant to the eyes. And then there, remember that story in Joshua chapter 7, verse 21. Achan, remember him? They were taken, they were going around Jericho and, and uh, the Lord says, listen, I don't want you to take any of the spoils for yourself. And usually when you say that, people say, okay, I'll, I think I'll take it. That's what he did. Let's, let's read what it says here. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment and 20 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of five shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. He saw it, he coveted it, and he took it. That's the process, isn't it? And so we have to stop the process right in the beginning because once that whole thing begins to unfold, I'll tell you, sometimes it's like a train going down a, down a hill. You just can't stop it. And so we have to stop it right away. And so what happened is he lifted up his eyes and he said, listen, I want to go over there. And then in verse 12, the Bible says he pitched his tent towards Sodom. Now, this is not a good thing because Sodom had a terrible reputation. It was like telling somebody, I'm going to Amsterdam. We know what that's all about. Uh, Sodom had a bad reputation. And so he pitched his tent in the direction of Sodom. That was not good. He should have pitched it, what? In the opposite direction of Sodom, away from that town. Because there is this magnetism for evil that that uh, is conjured up in every heart when you look at situations that are sinful. And the Bible says here in verse number 13 that uh, Lotham was, 
that Sodom was sinful against the Lord. Look at verse 13. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. I want to remind you this morning that every sin is ultimately a sin against God. Uh, Everything you do, you might say, well, I hurt that person's feelings. Well, God told you not to, and so therefore you've broken God's law. You've not only hurt the person, you've hurt God. And so, uh, and so every sin that we commit is a, ultimately a sin against God. And as the story unfolds, uh, he, uh, he pitched his tent toward Sodom. And I, you know, I guess we could embellish the whole story, but he eventually moved into town. And eventually he became an alderman at the gate. He, became, he, had a, he was an important person. And he was, listen to this, he was captured by the world. And you know, that's what Satan wants to do to every believer, you know that? He wants us to get, for us to get caught up in worldly things so that we don't use our time in a spiritual way. But we're all excited about the things that are going on in the world. Now, as Paul Harvey uh, would have said, the rest of the story now. Over in chapter 18, turn there quickly with me, please. Chapter 18. Uh, Lot and, uh, Lot's moved into Sodom. Uh, and God looks down and, and we know what Sodom is infamous for. It's a, increase, it is an immoral place. And so God sends his destroying angels. Listen, God sends his destroying angels to check the place out firsthand. Verse 18, the Lord appeared to him by the, the trees of Mamre and he was sitting in the tent. This is Abraham. It's hot. He's trying to get cool. Uh, and he lifted up his eyes and he saw three men there standing by him. When he saw them, he ran to, out to the tent and he bowed down before them. Now we know, uh, because we've read the story, that these three men were angels disguised as humans. And God does that, I'm sure, many, many times. In fact, so much so that in Hebrews chapter 13, we have this. And let's read it together. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. What that's saying is angels uh, appear in human form. And sometimes you, sometimes you have seen a situation and you say, boy, I've never seen that person before. How many times have you heard a news story that, uh, there was a terrible accident or something and somebody came out of nowhere and, and, and saved the situation or saved the person's life and they don't know what happened. The person is gone. Very well could have been an angel. And the Bible says that we should be on the lookout for these people. God, look for them. Uh, and so these three men came to Abraham and they're coming through and they're on their way to Sodom. God is not blind to what's happening in the world, but God's patience does wear out. And, uh, and so what happened is that the two angels headed off towards Sodom to check the situation out. And the one angel stood there with Abraham. And that angel was the Lord. We believe it was the second person of the Trinity, the pre, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And, and so he began to confer with, uh, he began to confer with Abraham. And he started to tell Abraham what he was up to. He says, listen, we're going to go down there and we're going to destroy that place. But now listen, Abraham has a nephew that lives there. 
And Abraham asked the question, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Will you do that? Because Abraham is brokenhearted for Lot, even though Lot has decided to live in the world. He still has a heart for his brother's son. And so, and so he begins his negotiation with God. And this is so interesting to me. You remember, he, he, he kind of throws out to God some hypothetical situations. He says, suppose, Lord, there are 50 righteous people down there. Will you destroy the town? And what he does is he keeps, he keeps creating another scenario. Look at verse 28. We're in Genesis 18. Suppose there were five less than 50. How about 45? Uh, you know, Abraham didn't know how many righteous people were there, but he thought... And so he kept trying to work God down. And this is, this is really interesting because... And, and it's, it's so interesting to realize this because, you know, when you're close to God, you can, like, talk to him pretty frankly. And you feel comfortable about talking to him pretty frankly because he understands where you're coming from anyway. And you don't have to put, like, on a big religious facade when you come to talk to God. You can, like, get down and, and talk very plainly to the Lord. And so he starts in some way working God down. He comes down to verse number 30. He says, suppose there's 30 there, Lord. How about that? Will you, will you uh, spare Sodom for 30? And so his faith seemed to dwindle as he kept uh, negotiating with God. And he finally got down to verse 32. He says, Lord, what about 10? If you could find 10 there, would you save the town? He said, listen, I will not destroy that place if you can find 10. Why did he use 10? This is interesting. Now, we know that whenever Lot was, uh, was extracted from Sodom, his uh, wife went out with him. She didn't last very long on the outside, did she? She turned back and became a what? Pillar of salt. Uh, and his two unmarried daughters came out with him. But, you know, he had other daughters, too. Uh, he evidently had three daughters that were married, in addition to the two daughters that weren't married that, that went out with him. And so if you do the math, if you do the math, you come up with ten. You come up with ten. And so, and so when Abraham was negotiating with God, he's got ten people on his mind. He has, he has these daughters uh, and, uh, and their husbands, three others, and then four people in his situation, the whole thing equals ten. And so uh, he says, Lord, if, if, I, if you can find ten people down there, will you save? He said, yes, I will. And so, uh, so the two angels show up at, at Sodom, for chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate. Now, Lot was a, evidently a respected person down here and had become pretty, uh, pretty influential. Um, and so he's sitting in the gate, and, um, and, and the story gets real ugly here now. Uh, the angels, these are two angels. They come to his house. He says, listen, you've got to stay inside tonight because who would trust uh, what one of us would want our guests to stay in Central Park at night or in Market Square at night? And so he says, listen, you've got to come in here and stay inside. And then what happened is this whole group of homosexual men 
came and surrounded the house of Lot and said, listen, you send these visitors out here because we want to know them carnally. <laughs> now, I think, that, I think that Lot knew who these people really were, and they were really messengers from God. And so he made the most unbelievable deal with these people outside that house. He said, listen, what, how would it be if I just give you my daughters? Now, what person in their right mind would ever do a thing like that? Lot was not in his right mind. He was out of his mind. And so what happened in the angels inside the house confused all these evil people outside the house with blindness and disorientation. Uh, and so then they said, listen, you've got to go out and you've got to find the people that you've witnessed to and get them out of here because we're destroying this place. And so Abraham, or excuse me, Lot went out and he began to talk to his sons-in-law. And uh, they just, uh, look at, well, we're over here in Genesis 19.14. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters. Now these are the other daughters. For the Lord will destroy this city, but to the sons-in-law he seemed to be joking. They didn't take him seriously. He wasn't effective with them. And so these people, these angels, brought Lot, his wife, his two daughters out of the city and destroyed the town. Uh, and so the question is always asked, was Lot a believer? He was. He was. Why would Abraham said, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? He knew that somewhere along the line that Lot had somehow, in some way, made a commitment to God by faith. That's the only way a person can be a believer. We are not believers by what we do or how we perform for God or how many good works we have. We are made believers. We are declared by God as believers when we exercise faith in him. And, and evidently Lot did that, but he lost his direction. Do you know anybody like that? Maybe you're like that today. You made a strong decision for the Lord, but you lost your direction. That's what happened a lot. And, and I really like what uh, Peter said in the New Testament about Lot. Let's look at it and let's read it. This is Peter talking about Lot. And he delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day, by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Boy, that kind of sum summarizes it. Peter said, listen, Lot was righteous. That means he was, uh, that he uh, was declared righteous by God. But he wasn't living a righteous life. But, his, but he was oppressed with the filthy conduct, the wicked people. He was tormented. He looked around and, you know, when you know the Lord, evilness really torments you. You know that? Before you come to Christ, you can look at sin straight in the eye and not have it affect you very much. But boy, once you become a Christian, once you become a believer, and of course, uh, once you believe in God and God sensitizes your soul, I tell you, sinful things and wicked things just kind of torment you. And so, he, so Lot, and I don't know why Lot stayed in Sodom. Maybe his family said, listen, we like it here and, and we're staying here and you can leave. And maybe he said, well, you know, I want to stay with my family. I'm not... I'm, I'll just get through it somehow. Well, uh, God destroyed the, the town. He drug him out by force. 
Um, there was a big difference between Abraham and Lot. Abraham walked by faith, Lot walked by sight. That was their attitude toward the world. I want to encourage you today, don't walk by sight, you'll get in trouble. Walk by faith. And the Lord will always lead you in paths of righteousness. Uh, now someone said this one time. Somebody said this one time. If God doesn't judge America, he will have to apologize to who? That is right. Do you think that America is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah? It's way worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Amer Sodom and Gomorrah almost looks like a Sunday school class compared to America. America is killing millions of little unborn babies. Um, and people don't know any better because the culture has so taught them that uh, that, that is not wrong. And I, my heart always goes out to people like that because they're... Many of them are wonderful people, uh, just misinformed, that's all. And, uh, and the sheer numbers of the people in America and the pride of the sin of America is in our face always, is it not? Always. And so America is, is much more wicked than Sodom and Gomorrah was in, on any day. And I don't know what the number is for America. I know it was 10 for Sodom. And I don't know what the number is in America, but I'll tell you what, judgment is coming to America. Amen. And somebody, we're all concerned, we can't figure out what's going on in our, our government today. And some of our people at the Tea Party yesterday, I saw you sent me a, Ron and Sue, you sent me a picture of yourself over there. You had a big placard. What did it say? Clean sweep or something? Sweep, it, sweep them out? Good idea. Uh, we don't understand what's going on in our country. Listen, I know what's going on in our country. God's judging America. That's what. America used to stand up for God and said, listen, we're on your side. And now everywhere we look, God is being put down and put out. And whenever 9-11 came and those buildings came down in New York, they were interviewing uh, Anne Graham Lotz. Jane Clayson interviewed her and said, she said, listen, I know what's happening in America. America for years has been telling God to get lost. Get out of our schools, get out of our government, get out of everything. And God, being the gentleman that he is, is doing just that. He is removing his hand of blessing and protection off of America. That's what's happening in America. But what can we do about it? Well, I'll tell you what we can do. We can do what Abraham did. We can intercede for the people in our world and for our country. And I know that I've been a whole lot more focused on praying for America recently that God will save America in some way. Because that's our only hope, isn't it? Now, Glenn Beck's going to help us, but God is our, ultimately our only hope. Thank God. He's going to help. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Lord, uh, we are just amazed at, uh, at how relevant this situation is to America, Lord. Uh, we love our country, we love the people, uh, our loved ones. And, and Abraham was concerned about his family way down there in uh, Sodom. And he prayed, uh, 
he prayed for them and and he did rescue a few of them. I pray that we'll, uh, we'll be the people of faith. That we won't make decisions based on sight, but we will make decisions based on faith. And that we'll keep believing on you and keep trusting in you and calling out to you as you've told us to do in the Bible. Give us strength in these tough times in our country. Help us to see you and keep focused, not to get depressed because of all of the situations that are taking place around us, Lord. Help us to be bold in our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.